My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and you're here for week two of a series we're calling Who Do You Think You Are? And what we're doing is we're uh, working to help you figure out who it is that God made you to be. And what we're hoping happens is that you get some handles on how you can access that and not only access it for yourself, but then pass it on. Now, it's our practice every week to read a passage of Scripture together and then look at what it means for our life. So I'd invite you to stand with me, if you would, out of respect for God's Word. It'll be on the screen. I'll read it aloud. We're reading from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, the very first book in the Bible, chapter 32, the story of Jacob. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions, and so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Israel uh, means he struggles with God, is the Hebrew meaning of that. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, like it's a Hebrew word for face of God, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're, uh, we're leading up to Easter. Easter's in uh, two weeks, and uh, what I've found about Easter time, just a brief thing before we jump into the message here, is that at Easter time, uh, people have this sense that uh, maybe there's something more to life. You're here because you feel like, man, there's something more to life, and I think that more is God, and I want to explore that. And, uh, there are people who have that kind of inclination, and then on Easter Sunday, feel like, culturally, okay, well, I think on Easter you go to church and eat ham, I'll go to church and eat ham. So they're open to showing up in a church service. Now, we don't think this is the end-all, be-all. This is, the church is not this gathering at 11 o'clock. It's you. The church is people. Uh, but we know this can be a starting point for people, and so I would encourage you to think about um, someone that you might invite with you just to say, hey, come with me on Easter Sunday. And uh, what we're going to be doing Easter Sunday is we're going to begin, uh, begin a series called Doubt and Faith. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I'm, I'm kind of by nature a skeptical person. I want things proven to me, and I want to understand, and it's hard for me to just accept what someone tells me. I, I just have to wrestle through all that, and I know that's a lot of people have that kind of thing, especially when it comes to faith. Like, I have these doubts, and what do I do about them? And, and how, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do bad things happen in my life? And how do you reconcile faith and science and reason? And we're going to talk about all those kinds of things in that series that will be kicking off on Easter Sunday. So if you know someone and you want to invite them, Easter Sunday in two weeks, um, please do that. That'd be a great thing. Well, but today we're talking about, uh, in this series, uh, the big questions in life. You know, why am I here? What's my purpose on earth? And, and probably one of the biggest, most important, and most pressing questions for all of us is the question that we're asking in this series is, who am I? Or who, do you, who, do you, who is it that you think you are? Now, if you're an older person, you have some sort of answer to that question that you're kind of sort of living out in a way. If you're younger, you're trying to figure out, well, kind of what is the answer to that question, and how do I live into that question? And so through this series, we're learning together how we might figure out the answer to that question. Here's what I've found. I've found that when you know who you are, uh, doors seem to open to you. Have you had this experience? You, you walk up to what feels like a door in life, and it feels like the handle to the door is on the other side of the door, and you're standing there at a blank 
slab. Have you ever had that feeling in life? What I have found is that when you know who you are, you suddenly discover that the handles are on the inside and you can open them. Doors begin to open when you start to understand who you are. Now, kind of the, the quote, the anchor quote for me for this series is from one of my, uh, one of the people I look up to a lot. His name is Dallas Willard. And he said this, he said, your life is God's gift to you. Who you become is your gift to God. So we're exploring how you might figure out who it is that God is making you into and uh, just trying to give you some real practical handles that will help you do that. So last week we talked about the fact that you find out who you are by looking up, not by looking in. It's kind of paradoxical uh, that you, instead of looking inside of yourself, you look outside of yourself to what God says about you uh, to find out who you are, that we're not defined by what we do or what we have or what people say about us. The real definition of who we are comes from God. So we looked at the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And today, the handle I want to talk to you about as through the, the life of, of Jacob, Joseph's father, is this. It's that when you look up, you finally find the courage to look in and face yourself. So here's, here's the question that I have for you. Uh, can you face yourself? What do I mean by that? Well, we, you just have to live a little while, and you make choices, and you make decisions, and you take actions, and for all of us, we have a list of things that we say, man, I wish I hadn't done that. How many of you, can you, any of you recognize that? Like, man, oh, if I could go back, if I could only go back and I could rewind the clock, then I would, I would, I would do it differently. And for many of us, what happens, this is just the human experience, some of those choices and decisions, we don't want to acknowledge what happened, and so we just don't even want to face them. And what happens when we do that is we find it very hard to face ourselves and to stare ourselves down because we're afraid of what we might find. And what happens when we do that is that we actually live life as an imposter, an imposter to ourselves. We put on a mask, so we become the person we think everybody around us wants us to be. We become uh, one person in one place and a different person in another place because we're not really sure who we are, and it's really hard to look on the inside and face who we are. Um, so I, I, want you, I want you to move beyond that. I want you to find out that you can face yourselves with God's help, and that it's not as scary as you might think. So we're using these stories from the book of Genesis. Now, if you don't know, the book of Genesis is kind of the story of, of mankind, and it's basically the story of one very dysfunctional family in multiple generations, and how God uses them, like he uses all of us who are broken people, uh, to bless the whole world. These are kind of the, uh, our spiritual ancestors. If you're a person of faith, you're a Christian, this is the story of your spiritual ancestors. And so last week we looked at uh, the story of Joseph. And this week we're looking at the story of Joseph's father, Jacob. And the next week we'll look at, at Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Um, but actually the title for this series got it from a show on TLC uh, by the same name. Who do you think you are? Maybe you've seen that show. What they do on that show is they find a celebrity and then they research their genealogy, and they take them to England or wherever, and they say, you were related to a king or Jack the Ripper or somebody. You know, like, it's like, oh, no. And then they, they basically they point out that who you came from, your DNA in the past, has an impact on who you are today, which is the same thing here. It's the same thing is true spiritually. Where you come from, your DNA can have an impact on who you are. So here's, here's Jacob's story. Jacob, at this point in the story in Genesis chapter 32, is, is probably around 40 years old. He's the, uh, the average age of an American, just a little slightly younger than that. And he's, uh, at this point in the story, had 20 years of being basically an imposter to himself and to God, unwilling to face himself. And here what we're finding in Genesis chapter 32 is he begins uh, to face himself 
possibly for the first time in his life. Now, here's, here's what I know about life. I know that you can learn from life in one of two ways. The first one is where you make all of the mistakes yourself and you pay the stupid tax. Anyone besides me paid the stupid tax in life? No? Okay, good. I'm not alone. You, you make the mistake and you go, oh man, I don't want to do that again. And then you make it again and then you make it again. And you go, oh, okay, I'm finally going to learn from that. And you pay the tax from learning the lesson in a painful way. Well, that's one way to learn. And I, I, I hope there's as few of those as possible in your life. You never forget those lessons. Uh, but you can also learn from someone else's mistakes and find out the things that they did that didn't work. And then you can say, I'm not going to add those things to my life. And so that's what I hope happens is that as we look at the life of Jacob, we can all collectively learn from someone else's mistakes. Now, here's what you need to know about the Bible when the Bible tells a story, especially when it tells a narrative like it does all the way through Genesis. Uh, the Bible is giving us scenes, kind of like a movie. You know how you, you'll sit down to a movie and the scene will open and you don't know exactly what's happening in the scene. It might be later in the life of the person and then the movie flashes back. And you kind of have to figure out, well, where are we in the story of this character? Well, it's the same thing in the Bible. It, it paints pictures and gives scenes. And so uh, the, the writers of the scriptures that were very careful writers, and so they uh, carefully put words in and stories in to illustrate points. And so when you see uh, the scenes from a person's life, you're meant to understand something about that person's character. And as we, uh, I'll show you here in just a second, as we walk through the story of Jacob, you see the same thing revealed about his character over and over again, that he's an imposter to himself, and he doesn't know who he is, and he's searching, and he's um, causing uh, all kinds of trauma to people around him as a result. So if you're going to understand his story, what you'd have to do is you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, uh, where his mother, Rebecca, is pregnant with twins, and their father, Isaac, is 60. So he's one of those old guys who has kids, and um, his mother uh, has, has twins, and as she delivers, the first one that comes out He's kind of red, ruddy complexion, complexion and he's uh, kind of a little bit hairy, which is kind of weird for a baby, but, but he is, and they name him, because in that day you named people based on what you thought they would be. They named him Esau, which means uh, red or um, hairy or something like that, and as he was coming out, uh, his, his brother, Jacob, had his hand around his heel, and so the midwife says, ah, he has his hand around the heel, this is going to be someone who trips people up, and so they name him Jacob, which is a Hebrew word for um, grabs by the heel or trips someone up. Uh, probably a better English translation of Jacob's name is cheater. How would you like it if your parents named you cheater? Hey, cheater, come here, buddy. Come on, little buddy. Come on, cheater. I, I mean, that's basically what they named him. They named him cheater. Uh, so his brother, Genesis 25, 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping uh, Esau's heel. And so he was named Jacob. He was named, uh, he was named cheater. So the name, again, implies a destiny, and I don't know if right away Jacob began to live into that, and he began to, to cheat people, but there's kind of an emblematic scene a little bit later in Genesis chapter 25. The scene fla uh, fa uh, flashes forward to when they're probably uh, late teenagers, early 20s, and Esau now is the hunter. He's the man's man. His dad loves him more than he loves Jacob. And Jacob, the narr narrative says, dwelt among, uh, amongst the tents. In other words, it's a really nice way of saying he was a mama's boy. And his mom loved Jacob more than she loved Esau. And so there was already this dysfunctional dynamic in the family. And I don't know if they played together. I don't know what it was like for them as brothers. But there's uh, this day that J Esau has been out hunting and Jacob is in and he's cooking stew. He's, he's, making, he's doing the woman's work is what the, is implied and he's there, and Esau comes in, and he's hungry. He's famished. He's been out all day, had nothing to eat. 
And there's Jacob cooking some red stew, some lentil stew. And Esau, in a moment of impulsiveness, comes in as the oldest and says, listen, give me some of that red stuff. I want some of that right now. Jacob sees an opportunity. Cheater sees a moment. And he says, uh, okay, fine, give me your birthright. Now you need to pause and you need to understand that in that culture, in that day, the eldest son was entitled to twice the inheritance of all of his siblings. And so he would have twice the money, twice the land, and Isaac was actually a very wealthy man, so he was going to get twice as much. And, he, and Jacob sees his moment, and he says, like brothers are, are, are want to do, then give me your birthright. Esau, and again, a moment of impulsiveness, he says, okay, fine, what good is a birthright to me? He's famished. He's only thinking about his stomach. And so he says, okay, fine, here, you can have my birthright. He eats the stew, and, and, and he eats the stew, and after his stomach kind of quiets down, he realizes what he's done. And he, the narrative says, and Esau despised his birthright. And you begin to see something about Jacob. You can begin to see the kind of person that he is. So if you then flash, for, you flash forward to Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is now old. It's, he's, he's, he had his sons when he's 60 years old, and now old, he's probably in his eight, 80s. And medical science at that time didn't have the ability to get rid of glaucoma or cataracts. And so like many people of that age, he didn't have the ability to see. He was basically blind. His hearing was starting to go. And uh, he calls his son Esau into him, his oldest son, who's going to pass on, he thinks, double portion of his inheritance. And he says, listen, son, I, like fathers of that age do with their sons, I don't know how much longer I have. My time may be very soon. So what I'd like for you to do is I'd like you to go out and hunt like I'd love for you to do. And I'd love to find the game that you know that I love. And I want you to make that one stew that you make for me. And then when you come in and do that, then I'll give you my blessing. And you'll, you'll be the one who inherits what I have. And I want you to do that. Well, as he's saying that to Esau, Rebecca, their mother, overhears this. She goes to Jacob. She goes to Cheater. She says, listen, I want you to do something go get me a goat, you're going to go in, and you're going to take the blessing from your brother. Now, Cheater doesn't put up any fight. He goes and he gets the goat, she makes the stew that, uh, that Isaac loves to eat, and she covers him, covers Jacob with, uh, with goat skins on his hands, and he goes in. His father can't see, his hearing's not great, but he goes in and he says, Father, here I am. And so Genesis chapter 27, verse 19, Cheater said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. He's, he's the cheater. This is what he does. He's, he's learning to get what he wants by manipulating. And his father's confused. He says, oh, this is the voice of Jacob. And he says, come near me. And she put on Jacob uh, Esau's clothing and he smells it. He says, ah, oh, the, the smell of my son. And, and she, he feels his hands and the goat skins. And he says, ah, oh, but it is the hand of Esau. I mean, that's a hairy guy, but you know, hey. He gives him his blessing. At the scene kind of closed. It was a movie. You'd see like Jacob just exiting the tent and in walks Esau. And he's gone and killed the game and he's been preparing the stew and he walks in with it in his hands. And he says, Father, I'm here. I'm here to receive the blessing that you've promised to me. I've done what you've asked. And here I am as your eldest son and I, I'm gonna ready to receive what you have to give me. And I, Isaac says, says, what? What happened? The narrative says that he trembled violently. He said, your brother has come in and he's stolen the blessing from you. Well, Esau bitterly uh, bemoans this and he says this in Genesis 27. Esau said to his father, you have only one blessing, my father. Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. I mean, he's just, he's broken down by this and he's instantly furious. And he, he says something interesting. He says, isn't he rightly named Cheater? 
I mean, isn't that right? He's, he's a deceiver. That's the kind of person that he is. Well, obviously, he's very angry and uh, makes a plot to kill his brother. His mother hears about this, and she says to Jacob, Jacob, now what you need to do is you need to get out of here. You need to go see my brother Laban, and you need to go live with them because your brother's going to kill you. He lived in that day a long way away, several days travel. And uh, so Jacob makes uh, plans to go do that. Now, now you got to notice something. you got to pause right here in the narrative and understand something, that Jacob, at this point in his life, has learned that he can get what he wants by cheating, manipulating, and stealing. And he's learned that it works. So he doesn't pay attention to what it does to his character or what it does to the people around him. It just gets him what he wants. And so he's living as an imposter before himself and God. And if you were to tap him on the shoulder as a 20-something and say, hey, listen, listen, you, you don't see where this is headed in your life. This is a problem, Jacob. You need to stop. I mean, this is going to take you in bad places, dude. Cut it out. He would do what any of us do when our character is questioned. He'd give the 3D defense. You know what the 3D defense is? Is you deflect, you deny, and you defend. It's not me, it's him, it's that. See, we all do this little dance when someone questions our character. Well, the next scene is in Genesis chapter 28, and he has this interesting dream. He's on his way to his uncle Laban's house, and he has this dream. He lays down, the, the text says, just in some random place, and he has this dream. He sees this ladder going up to heaven and angels descending and ascending, and he wakes up. And he goes, oh, wow, what an amazing experience, Genesis 28. So when Cheater awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. This is none other than the house of God. So he has this spiritual experience. Now, you're hearing this, and you're thinking, oh, well, Jacob was raised as a Christian, and he went to church every Sunday, and he was really religious, and so he's tapping in. No, no, there was no Christianity at this point. There was even no Judaism. He was mildly religious. We don't get any indication from the text that he was really, Jacob himself was really a, a follower of God in any way. His father was to some degree, but you don't get the sense that it affected Jacob's life at all. He just had this kind of ex spiritual experience, and, and that happens to a lot of people. They don't really, you know, there's a God, and, but they have this, maybe they have a dream, or they have some experience they can't explain, or they show up to a church service, and they feel something on the inside, and, and they lodge it, and, and maybe you've done this, you lodge this in the back of your brain, like, wow, that was and there's a God, and that God has a plan for my life. I mean, this is what's happening to Jacob. And, and Jacob does what a lot of us do in a moment like that. He, he, he says, oh, well, that must be good enough to change me. I must be okay. God must approve of my life. Because nothing changes in Jacob's behavior or life at all. He just files this away as some nice spiritual experience that he's had. So the next scene is Genesis chapter 29, and he, he comes to his uncle Laban's property, and he's there by a well, and he's He's, uh, he's thinking, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to marry, one. he's never met his Uncle Laban, he's going to marry one of his cousins, it was like Arkansas back then, you married your cousin, um, but my family's from Arkansas, so I can say that. So he, he goes and he's, he sees this girl coming, and her name is Rachel, and the narrative says that she was lovely in form and beautiful. In other words, that's Hebrew for she was hot. And he, so he sees her and he's like, whoo, I like that, and, and all of a sudden, she's there bringing the sheep. And uh, so he's, there's a, 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 a stone over the well, and he does like a 20-something guy who's trying to impress a girl does. He probably flexes a little bit while he does it and lifts the stone off like, yeah, check me out. And then something interesting happens. Then he breaks down in tears and cries. Now, I don't know if this is like a pickup technique if you're a single guy <laughs> to do a feat of strength and then burst into tears. Maybe it shows your strength and sensitivity. I don't know. Try it. Let me know. If you find a, a woman, I'll perform the wedding, okay? We'll, we'll figure that out. 
So, but, but Rachel had a sister, uh, and Rachel, the, the, the text says, had weak eyes, which is the Bible's way of saying she had a great personality. That's basically what's going on here. And so uh, Jacob uh, goes to Laban, his uncle, and he says, uh, you know, I'm here. My mother sent me, and your, your sister, and, and I'm here to work for you. And, and Laban says, well, what would you like? And he sees Rachel, and he says, listen, I will work for you for seven years if you'll only give me Rachel's hand in marriage. And the text says, and it was because of his love for her, it was like a few days. So the seven years comes to a close, and uh, Jacob goes to Laban and says, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for my wife that you promised me. He says, okay, fine. And then they make a preparations for the wedding, and that day, wedding was a several-day celebration. So there's the, the wedding ceremony, and then after the ceremony, there's a big, giant party, and everyone gets a little bit, has a little bit too much to, to drink in that day. And, and so the wedding night, the couple goes into the tent, and what happens is the cheater is cheated. And in Jacob's confused state and in the dark, the woman is wearing a veil. He sends in Leah instead of Rachel. And when he wakes up, it says this, Genesis 29, when morning came, there was Leah. Now this is, what, this is more than this what's said on the surface in the words right here. You're meant to understand there's more behind this because Jacob realized something. He realized something that you and I realize. You can... You can sleep with something, but what you wake up with is something entirely different. You go to sleep with your career, you go to sleep with your money, and in the morning, it's not what you expected. Now, you would think this would be a wake-up call for Jacob, but it really isn't. He doesn't, doesn't really get it. So he goes to Laban, he says, how do, how could, the cheater says, how could you cheat me? Because, see, we don't, we don't ever believe about ourselves that we're doing it wrong, right? We just, it's just what we do. How could you cheat me like this? And he says, uh, Laban says, well, work for me another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel as well as a wife. And so uh, he says, okay, fine. And, and, and he says, give, me, give her to me in a week, and then I'll give you seven years. And so he does. And so he takes Rachel as his wife. And, and then, then the story just kind of goes out. They, they stay there, and Jacob begins to take care of the flocks for Laban until his wife, wives begin to have children. And and he realizes, you know, I'm old enough now. I could have my own family, and I'd like to, uh, to, to have my own property. And he goes to his father-in-law, and he says, listen, I, I really would like to have my own family. And so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll breed the flocks so that your flocks succeed and mine succeed, and, and, and it'll all be good, and then we'll leave. And Laban says, okay, that sounds like a deal. Well, Jacob, the cheater, has learned uh, how to breed animals, and so he breeds them to his advantage. And so he gets the ones with the genetic superiority, and gives Laban the, the useless ones. Well, Laban finds out about this. Jacob knows he's been had. The cheater uh, has been had. And so he, Laban goes after, uh, goes after uh, Jacob. And this is what says Genesis 33. Again, cheater, totally oblivious to what he's, what he's doing. Cheater said to his uncle, uh, his father-in-law now, my honesty will testify for me in the future. In other words, no, I'm honest. I, I mean, I'm, I would never lie to you. Because when, when you're deceived, you believe everything you do is correct. Now, you gotta, again, you've got to pause. Um, you've got to pause because you've got to notice that Jacob has learned that he can get what he wants by cheating, and it works. So he ignores the consequences to his character, and he lives as an imposter to God and himself. Now, he's 15 or 20 years deep into patterns of action, thought, and behavior. Now, do you know people around you that not you, other people that are 15 and 20 years deep into a certain pattern of behavior, and you go, they'll never change. 
Well, they're just always like that. And have you ever seen people change? I mean, it's, it's hard. So you kind of wonder, will Jacob ever change? Will he ever get it? And you've got to say that if you were to go and tap Jacob on the shoulder and confront him and say, Jacob, don't, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see? Now you're passing this on to your kids. Don't you get that, Jacob? Jacob would do what we all do when our character is questioned. He would give the 3D defense. He would deflect, and he would deny, and he would defend. Well, uh, the next scene would be in where we are in Genesis chapter 32, and, and Jacob realized he has no place to go other than go back home, but he knows his brother Esau that he robbed of his father's birthright and blessing is at home, and so he's got to somehow make peace, and so he sends a message to Esau and says, I, your brother, 20 years later, am coming home hoping that his brother will welcome him. And, and the word he gets back is that Esau is coming with 400 men, and you're meant to understand he's coming to kill him. Jacob's immediately terrified. He can't go back. He can't go forward. He doesn't know what to do. And so that gets us to the scene we read at, at the beginning of the message today, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob basically puts his house in order. He knows this is a moment of reckoning. He knows he's going to have to face himself in some way, shape, form, or fashion. He doesn't fully understand and so he sends his wife and kids. It's basically what he's doing is he's cashing out his 401k. He's cashing out his insurance policy. He's giving it to them. And he's saying, well, if I die, at least they will be okay. And he sends everything on ahead. And the text says that he stays and that a man wrestled with him. This is an, a, a, an angel or um, a messenger from God. He wrestles with this man. And then the man asks him in the middle of all this, he asks him this very, very important question as he wrestles with the man. And again, it's more than what's on the surface. He asked him this question, Genesis 32, 27. What is your name? He's not seeking information. This is another way of, that, that phrase right there is another way, and when you read that question in the Bible, it's another way of asking, who do you think you are? Who are you really? Be honest. Own it. For the first time in the whole story that we've read, he says his name. My name is Cheater. You got me. I'm a cheater. I've gotten here by deception and lies. He finally, for the first time, owns who he is, and he drops a 20-year pattern of deflecting and denying and defending. And God, the God who has chased him all of his life, now he recognizes that that God has something for him, and he's willing to lay down who he is. Now, something, two things happen when he encounters God, really encounters God, that always happen when any of us encounter God. The first thing is that God touches him, and he touches, him, touches Jacob on the hip, and it's meant to imply that Jacob is never the same again. So you can have encounters with God where you go, oh, I had a, a, a spiritual experience, or I felt something great, or I felt close to God for a little bit. But it doesn't change you. See, it doesn't touch you. It doesn't really go to the core of who you are and change you. It's just an, an experience. But when you really encounter God, you're changed. You're touched. You're a different person. And then he changes his name. He says, your name's no longer J Jacob. Your name is now Israel. Israel is, means someone who wrestles with God. He changes who he is. Now, I've, I've said all this to say what I want to say to you in about the next three minutes. Because this is a story um, that's basically a, a, a picture of what it means when someone is converted or when someone is saved or when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. Because this is the story of conversion. And here's what, here's what we believe as Christians, that you can't really know yourself until you know God. And once you know God, then you can actually know yourself. But a key marker that makes that possible is that you first honestly look at yourself and you're willing to admit to God and to yourself, that's who I really am. 
I, I have the courage now. I can, I, can look, I can look in because I've looked up. I, I can do that now. I can actually own up to who I am. I no longer have to deflect, deny, or defend. And at that moment, that's, that's the moment when God can say, okay, now I can touch you because you're honest. Now I know you're really, you're really being honest. Now I can touch you. I can change you. I can give you a different name. And you're converted. Uh, you know, uh, conversion, right? This is maybe not so much, but when I was a kid, it seemed like everyone had a conversion van. Do you remember conversion vans? I think they still make them. But you, you know what they do with a conversion van, right? They, took, they would take a, an ordinary van, and then they would take it, and they'd rip all the seats out and put in big captain's seats and leather, and there'd be, you know, carpet on the walls back in the 80s of the van. I don't know if they still do that. But. And they would take it from what it was, and they would make it better than it was. That's what conversion is. You take something the way it is, and you make it better than it was. In fact, when you're converted, when you, when, you be, when you meet Jesus, there's something that happens. There's this transfer that happens from Jesus' account to yours, your account. Jesus takes the junk that you have and gives you what he has. And there's this transfer. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians. We'll throw it on the screen. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what happens is kind of like this. There's this, there's this transfer that happens. Here's my account, right? My account, this, this kind of dirty, nasty, rumpled up piece of paper represents my failure, and it represents my sin, and it represents my mistakes, and it represents what I have to offer God. Really, not much. Like, this is something you throw away in the trash. This is what I've got to offer. But there's a transfer. See, it's not, God doesn't go, well, you're not good enough. Uh, there's a transfer, because he has a perfectly clean sheet. And so what happens is he takes my junk, and he gets rid of it, and he forgives it, and he wipes the slate clean, and he says, now you get to have what I have. So everything I have, you now have. So there's an incredibly important scene in the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus is baptized, and because you get everything that Jesus has, because there's this transfer, if it's true of Jesus, it's now true of you, and as Jesus is baptized, he hears this voice, and this voice says, this is my son, my beloved son, I'm very pleased in him. And this, this you're, you're meant to understand from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. See, this is the difference between Jesus and Jacob. Jacob, from the beginning, is a, is a cheater. From the beginning, Jesus is the beloved. And they both live out of that. And you're meant to understand that that can be true of you. Your name can change from whatever it was. Cheater, broken, ugly, angry, bitter. It doesn't matter what, what, what your name was. Now your name can be, I'm the one that Jesus loves. So in the morning, you don't have to get up and deflect and deny and defend. And when someone says, hey, what about this? You don't have to deflect and deny and defend. You look yourself in the mirror in the morning and you say, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm the son that he always wanted. I'm the daughter that he always wanted. And you're different. And you figure out who you are. And doors begin to open to you. I thought it'd be good if we spent a moment of reflecting thinking about our lives, and, and we just kind of have a little practice around here. At the close of a service like this, we'll just give you a chance to reflect. And a, a really simple way to do that is to just kind of tune everybody else out around you. You can even close your eyes if that helps you. And just do a little inventory of your life. To this point, who are you? Is there someone that you need to uh, honestly own about who you are and who you've become, and maybe this is the moment that you, for the first time, after a 20-year pattern, a 30-year pattern, you go, oh, 
okay, I can admit who I am. And then you can receive, see the beautiful message of Jesus is that that's never the final, that's never the final determination of who you are. God's never overwhelmed by how broken we are. In fact, he gives us a new name and he touches us and he makes us different. Makes it possible for us to live a different kind of a life. And maybe you want to claim that for the first time and this is a moment of conversion for you where you say, okay, I'm done. Or maybe it's, this is a moment where you reclaim that and go, I've forgotten who I was made to be. God, wherever we are on this journey of trying to figure out who we are, we need to hear what you say about us. Uh, we get overwhelmed by um, how we think about ourselves. We get overwhelmed by our brokenness. And you're not. You're not overwhelmed by that. You, God, you have a new name for us. You have a new identity for us. You, have a, uh, you take our junk and you wipe the slate clean. So we want to take that. And we want to walk out of here today different than when we came in. We want to walk out of here as your beloved son or your beloved daughter. So give us uh, the faith and the understanding to know how to do that so we can walk out of here different person. Pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. We always leave you with a blessing. I'd invite you to stand with me if you would and you'll see people around you holding up their hands. It's their way of uh, receiving a blessing. If you're comfortable with that, great. If you're not, that's okay too. And you can just receive this blessing. Uh, may you... Know that you're sent from here to love the God who loved you when you were unlovely. You're, you're, meant, you're sent from here to, to love God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See ya.